Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, so let's try this again. Good morning, everybody. So the good news is we've covered about a thousand years, and uh, we only have a few hundred more to go. So we should be good. And um, most of this should have come into somewhat of a context just by all these connections. Now, you've probably noticed that as we've been going through that, that a lot of those original ideas keep resurfacing. And the historical context keeps coming back. The overall theology um, continues to show itself in slightly different ways, but in somewhat of a uniform way. And over time, if you're reading from the beginning to the end, going through the Old Testament, what you're going to see, just in general, is a basic theology that slowly develops until it it becomes something that is uh, a little more profound and a little more concrete and a little more developed. And so um, part of that we'll talk about when we get to the prophets. And part of it we've, always di- uh, we've already discussed and shown the, the kernels of that thought even from the very beginning. So just as a little bit of a backdrop, we're going we're gonna to look at the empires that were around at different times in history. And the reason is not so that it's just merely a... Um, a lesson in ancient history or anything like that, but it, like a lot of things, that if you want to understand what the Israelites were dealing with, uh, you need to understand it with, within the context of the different political situations and the different wars and the different influences that were coming into them and what they were responding to. Uh, you may have noticed in the beginning, it was mostly responding to some of those Canaanite cultures and making sure that they weren't following those ways. Then there was the Egyptian um, aspect of it that we saw in the Exodus. And then later on, um, it starts looking at some of these additional empires. So just to give you a a bit of a reference here. All right, so we've talked about the Assyrian Empire already, uh, quite a bit actually. Um, By the time of the... uh, The the northern kingdom, which fell in 721 to the Assyrian Empire, um, they were the dominant empire, and they were also very ruthless, as I have explained a few times. And after they started to fade, the Babylonians, to just to the south of them, so like this would be the Assyrian area, and then later the Assyrian had an empire that was about this big as well. Now, what happened is the Assyrians started to wane in their power, and the Babylonians came to dominance. And that happened at 628, between 628 and 539 BC. They were aided by what they call the Medes. So the Assyrians, like Nineveh, there's the capital of Assyria right there. And then if you go to this section over here, just to the east of Assyria, you've got the, the Medes, the Median Empire. And then that's spelt different. Ekbaktana was the capital of the Medes. They misspelt that one there. And 
they joined, the Medes and the Babylonians joined so they could conquer the Assyrians. So they basically went up, sacked Nineveh, and that was the beginning of the end for the Assyrians. And because the Assyrians were so brutal and people hated them so much, it didn't take much for the other, uh, other areas like Egypt and southern Turkey and, and uh, the areas up around northern um, Syria and, and uh, Israel. The first chance they got, they decided that, well, you know, let's get rid of them. And so they, uh, they found it very easy to rebel against them. Um, unfortunately... The uh, Babylonians weren't a whole lot better. So they, they engaged in a lot of the similar tactics that the Assyrians did, which somewhat makes sense if you look at the geographical nature of the two. Obviously, there was a lot of cross-cultural similarities between the north up here and in the south. There's Babylon and there's Nineveh. So they weren't that far away. And since they're all part of the, uh, the valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates, Mesopotamia, since they were all part of that general area, there was a lot of cultural influence as well. But the Babylonians came into prominence, and they didn't last as long as the Assyrians. They were at their height between 628 and 539 BC. At the same time, the Medes were part of that, and so they were around around the same time. So basically, think about it as like uh, two different... Um, cultures coming together to conquer the Assyrians. And then after that, they had a bit of a partnership. And what the Babylonians did is they went north and they conquered all this area. They came south and then conquered that area down into Egypt and conquered that area. And so at the time, they had the largest empire in the Middle East. Now, where that comes into play for the um, Israelites is that the Babylonians actually conquered Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. The Assyrians didn't. The Assyrians came down and, and they were camping at the city gates, but they didn't actually totally conquer Jerusalem or the southern kingdom, whereas the Babylonians did. But part of it was, uh, it was Israel's fault to a large degree. I should say Judah. I should say the southern kingdom's Judah. Part of it was Judah's fault because what happened when the Babylonians came the first time, they, uh, the Babylonians just took some of the more important uh, people in Judah, the king and some of the people in the court and some of the prominent people. They deported them back into Babylon. And after they did that, they thought that things would be fine. But the next king that came afterwards decided he was going, going to rebel against uh, the Babylonian Empire. And when he did, then the Babylonians came back. And this time, they weren't playing nice anymore. So that's when they totally sacked the city, destroyed it, tore down the walls, took a, a large number of people and deported them back over to Babylon. Um, yesterday, there was a question by Lou, right, about the Babylonians. What was the difference between the north and the south? Now, remember the Assyrians, when they came in, they took the the different tribes in the north and they diffused them and scattered them throughout the kingdom. And so to this day, you hear about the lost 10 tribes of Israel and that's the north. And they call it that because they were sent into the other areas of the Assyrian empire and they were scattered and they were diffused. And then eventually they just became part of where they ended up living. And at the same time, the Assyrians came down and resettled and repopulated the area of Israel in, in the northern part. So 
the difference between the Babylonians is when the Babylonians came down and conquered Judah, they didn't take the people and then just scatter them all over the place. What, what they did is they decided that they were going to allow them to live in somewhat of a communal nature. And so the Jews who were deported from uh, Jerusalem, they went into Babylon and they formed somewhat of like a ghetto. They, they, had maintain, they could maintain their culture and they could maintain, maintain their religion. This also was the time when, because they were able to maintain their religion in a different land, um, that was when it was very evident that God is not just our God of our particular area, but he's the God of all of creation and all of the world. And so that was the, uh, the beginning of that universalism. And you'll notice as, as you're reading through the, the Bible in the beginning, it was like, well, they can worship their gods. We worship Yahweh. And then later on, as time developed, they were struggling with this question. Well, wait, do those other gods even exist? Are those other gods um, real gods? And uh, there were people with various positions on that because you've, you've got the Canaanite influence as well as some of the others. Um, but there was this connection with the land and the gods. And I think the general rule was they figured that, well, we're in Israel. And when we're in Israel, we have our God, our land is sacred. It's connected to our God and we are his people and we're connected to our God. And, and they had that understanding. But now that they're deported down into Babylon, they, they did a few things. First thing they did is they started collecting their different works. So a lot of the writings and the scrolls that they had, they started collecting them and putting them together. And that was when some of the, uh, what they call redaction work took place. So they take these different letters and they say, okay, let's, let's make this into one letter. And they would, you know, edit some of that and, and, and they brought them together. Um, it was probably also the time, although we don't have written records of this happening, but it was probably the time when they started to discern what would be part of the eventual uh, Hebrew canon and what wouldn't. You know, so they probably did some of that. And in addition, what they did is they solidified their practices and they figured out how it was that they wanted to be able to consider themselves Jews and have that real clear identity. Because when you're in the land of Israel, you've got a lot of different tribes and a lot of different areas. They had different ways of doing things. And that gets reflected in the book of Kings even. But from the exile on, they're going to be much more uniform in their practice. And this was all happening during that period of the Babylonian exile. So for about um, the first beginning of the deportation took place and... 587. It was 20 years. I'm trying to do my math. 603. Oh, I shouldn't try to do math on the top of my head. So, but 587 was the, when they wiped out the city and did the big deportation. Some say 586, most say 587. So you go 97, 07. So the very beginning of the 600s is when they had that first deportation. And so Jeremiah, some of you may have read somewhere that the Babylonian exile lasted 70 years. And that's because they're counting it from the first deportation. And if you follow it from the second deportation, then it would be 50 years. And so 50 to 70 years that they were in Babylon. And this is what we consider the Babylonian uh, exile. All right. So anyway, Babylonia and the Median Empire were 
during this time, basically about, um, oh, I don't know, 100 years or so, more or less. I'm roughly rounding. Okay, but what happened here is the Babylonians didn't last very long, and they couldn't sustain their power base. Over to the east, there was another empire called Persia. Now, this one you've probably heard of. To this day, Iranians call themselves Persians, when they're in the U.S. at least. (laughs) So the uh, Persian Empire was one that began, and where was that? No, it doesn't have there. Oh, Susa. So there's Susa. That was kind of the capital there. But it went all the way back. Parthians were kind of another tribe, but that was part of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire lasted a long time. So it went from 559 B.C. to 330 B.C. So Persia lasted up until the time of Alexander the Great. That's why, for example, when you're um, reading your ancient Greek history, you'll hear about the Persian-Greek wars and things like that. So it's the same Persian Empire. And that all started with... in. 559, Cyrus the Great, he was one who united all the tribes around him. And after he united the tribes around him, he must have been a charismatic figure as well. Because in a very short time, he united tribes. And then he got people in in countries even to decide that they wanted to become Persian and stay within, not become Persian, but stay who they were, but come within the Persian Empire. And uh, many of the different cities and areas where he conquered, they were actually uh, just the city saying, okay, here you go. You know, we're more than happy to, uh, to live within your, your rule. And part of it was, as I mentioned before, Cyrus had a different style. He allowed the people to maintain their customs, maintain their traditions, continue their worship. And many of them were allowed to go back home if they were exiled, like the Jews were allowed to go home. And he had a much favorable um, relationship with the different tribes that, that he would go into in the different areas and lands. But at the same time, Cyrus was one who you didn't want to mess with because when he had to be brutal, he could be brutal as well. But the Persians, they were around in some of these um, books that we'll read a little later. They set their, their period within the Persian period. All right. Yeah, you can see also, at this time, the Persian Empire was bigger than any previous empire in the Middle East, which included Egypt, all the way over to Greece, all of Turkey, up through Armenia, and then back here in the Indus River Valley. This is India, actually, up around this part. And what did the Persians believe? Oh, okay, there's a complicated... We'll, we'll kind of get to that one to a certain degree. Persians had a mixed type of religion and they were just to give you a brief one there's a religion called zoroastrianism and zoroastrianism is dualistic in nature and so you have good bad spirit matter um, and you have mazda the god of light and but darkness they 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 had this dualistic nature but the persians did have some similarities actually with the Israelites and Jewish uh, thought as well. And there was um, some influence that happened there. And that's, that's why I mentioned, and I will mention if I hadn't, that in the book of Tobit, um, it talks about how 
the uh, Tobit was from the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, and he went out over into areas that would be considered eastern, well, near the Persia area, the, between the Medes and the Persians in that area. And so there's some thought that maybe there was some influence by the Israelites that came into that area um, that influenced some of the worship that happened with the Persians. Um, eventually, the Persians would become Zoroastrianist um, worshipers in their own culture. Um, but like a lot of larger empires, then all these different areas would have their own particular ways of worship, and they didn't really um, try to um, force their religion on the conquering tribes. So, But Zoroastrianism, even into the Roman era, was still a somewhat popular religion, and it, it, it evolved in different ways. And St. Augustine, for example, he, he was playing with different religions when he was trying to come to the truth. And one of them was this uh, Manichaeism that was based in Zoroastrianism. And that was, again, a dualistic type of uh, religion. Um, and he came to see that the, the problem with the dualistic religion is um, it doesn't really hold up philosophically. And uh, Plato actually came to that conclusion as well. But anyway, I'm getting off track again. But anyway, the Babylonians, or the Babylonians, the Persians were around up until the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he was uh, Macedonian, so northern Greece. And he conquered all of the area that the Persians had and then more. So he went deeper into Egypt. He went farther east into uh, India and actually, at one point, he wanted to go to China, and he was all ready to go. And his general said, we're not going. We're done. You know, because they were spending, you know, years going through and conquering all these different areas. Um, Alexander the Great, he didn't even live that long. He only lived from 336, well, I mean, his reign was be, with 336 to 323. Yeah, so so his reign was actually somewhat short. It was just a little more than a decade. But in that time, he conquered all this land. And he was one who his military tactics were, were very good. And in addition to that, he also, he also was considered a, a very fierce warrior. And so he would always go out into the forefront of the war and uh, would be part of that. So he had a way of kind of rounding the troops. He was very charismatic, obviously, to be able to pull this off, but not so charismatic that, you know, the rest of his army wanted to go all the way to China, you know. So, But I think in his mind, he wanted to just conquer the whole world, and he assumed that he was going to live forever, but he didn't. He died in Babylon. Um, there's some uh, speculation on whether he was killed because of an injury or if he got malaria or if he was poisoned and uh, the truth of the matter who knows it seems like he got some sort of uh, disease and they guess malaria but they don't really know for sure but they do know he died <laughs> so right after that there was a problem because he didn't have a plan for succession and because he didn't have a plan for succession the next kings that came after him were basically they took the kingdom and then split it up among the different generals. And so here you've got some of the Greek empires after Alexander the Great. The ones that are going to be more important in the life of Israel 
is you've got the northern part, the Seleucids up north, and then you've got the, it spells with a P-T, but Ptolemy's down south here in Egypt. Now, it would, you would think that, well, the Seleucids got the better deal. Look how big that is. And then, and then Egypt's not quite as big. But keep in mind that the, uh, the breadbasket and the economic powerhouse at this time was Egypt. Because they had the Nile River and, and they just had a huge flow of, of goods and, and agriculture that comes out of Egypt. As well as a long established culture and civilization. And so Egypt was always considered, even, even though we always look back and think, well, the Greek world, they, they were the civilized ones. Um, and they were the ones that everyone looked up to. At this time, though, Egypt was. Egypt was considered the, even the Greeks talked about the Egyptians as being like the real uh, highly cultured civilization in the, at the time. So, so the Ptolemies had this area here, and the Seleucids are up north. And if you notice, you've got this area around here. See how that color goes around? Yeah. And then you've got this little section in here, and you've got the section up here. Well, that's going to be a problem for Israel because the disputed land between these two generals and then the later kingdoms that would come after them just overlapped with Israel. And so at one point, you'd have the, the Ptolemies that were a little better, actually, when it came to allowing the Jews to uh, continue their religion and their practice of their faith. And then the Seleucids that were up north, when they came down and they were fighting against the Ptolemies, once they, um, they won the major battle and took over that area, then they changed some of the practices eventually. In, in the beginning, they didn't, but after another emperor came in, then he decided that they were going to Hellenize uh, Israel, just like all the other areas need to be Greek. And so in their culture and style and language, uh, they did that as well with the Israelites. And because of that, that began what would be the Maccabean uh, revolt. And that's where you get the books of Maccabees. And, uh, and for a short time, the Jews had uh, some autonomy after that. They actually um, won many of those battles and had some autonomous rule for, for a little while. And then, of course, the Romans come on the scene. And when the Romans came on the scene, they, they came from the west and conquered all the area around. You know. But anyhow, that's just kind of the, the general historical backdrop. And, and all this was happening between a few time periods. So it started the Babylonians, 628 to 539 B.C., the Medes around the same time. So then next came the Persians from 539 to 330. And then that's when Alexander the Great conquered BC. And then Alexander the Great was between 336 and 323 BC. And then after 323, you've got the divided Greek kingdoms that go from 323 all the way down to about 30 BC. And around 30 BC, that's when Rome totally conquered all the Greek kingdoms after Cleopatra. But to be honest, before that, probably about 100 BC, much of that was already happening anyway, because the Romans were sending out their armies uh, to the west or to the east. And as they were doing that, at first, the, some of the Greek, the Ptolemies, for example, said, oh, yeah, come on over. And then the Romans who came over to help them as mercenaries decided that they would just stick around. And so really from about 100 BC on, the Romans were the dominant players in that area. At the time of Jesus, we all know the Roman Empire was the dominant empire 
in the Middle East as well as the rest of the Mediterranean uh, world at that time. Okay, so you're all good with your ancient histories and empires, right? All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at Tobit. Now, the book of Tobit, it originally had an Aramaic original. And later what happened is the Greek translation remained, the one that we got in the Septuagint. And the original Aramaic that was written was lost. But then later on, after the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, then they found some Aramaic Aramaic, um, scrolls that referred to the book of Tobit. And there were some slight differences um, in, in that. And the Aramaic originals that they found were dated to about 100 B.C. And this was in Qumran, that area I was talking about, in the eastern part of the Dead Sea. And the, so the, the book of Tobit was written somewhat later than the time that it describes. All right, so there's the historical frame of reference it's like, for example, let's say I'm going to write, uh, I'm going to write uh, about what took place in the Revolutionary War. I'm writing about it today, but I'm writing about things that took place a couple hundred years ago. So it, it's, it's like one of those kind of things going on. And so the Book of Tobit was written later, but it's written with a, um, a theological perspective, which is fairly modern, but it's writing about times that go back a few hundred years earlier into the that period in the Persian period or before the Persian period even. Okay, so the historical frame of reference is you've got the north and the south split after Solomon. That's 931 BC. So the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah have been split. And then Tobit is from the north, the tribe of Naphtali. And they were deported in 734 BC. And that was, remember, when the Assyrians came down and they scattered the uh, Israelites throughout the empire there. And so Tobit has a son, Tobias. And Tobias is lived until the fall of Nineveh, which was around 612. It's kind of vague with some of the dates, but this is according to the story. And so the stories about Tobit, who was blind, he was an elderly man who was blind, and his son Tobias, and they lived, Tobit lived in Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and that's where he was exiled. And he sends, well, Tobit was, Tobit lived in Nineveh, and he sends his son to Ekbatana to read to his relative Rakel. All right, so basically he was, let's go back and look at the map again, just... All right, Ekbatana, this one they spelt right. Okay, so, and then you've got Nineveh. And so they were originally up in here, they got exiled. So Tobit got exiled into this area in Nineveh. And then he sends his son to Ekbatana to meet up with his um, relative, Ragel. And then Ragel's daughter, Sarah, all right, so we got another Sarah here, uh, happens to be in the picture. And of course, Tobias falls in love with Sarah, and uh, it's kind of a nice little love story that develops from that as well. Now, here's what's interesting. In, in the uh, 
this is one of the favorite readings that people have in weddings because at the time when Sarah and Tobias marry, um, they, on their wedding night, Tobias has this great idea, let's pray. And so they sit up and they do this big, long, wonderful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And, and people who get married, they like that as their first reading of a lot of their marriages. The second one is love is patient, love is kind. Love, you know, they, they always do that one too. But what's interesting about that is the reason, or maybe not the reason, but a good incentive for, for Tobias to pray like he did is that, that Sarah had been married seven times before and every husband died on the wedding night. So you can just see Tobias. I love you, baby, but <laughs> let's pray. <laughs> okay, so so the the and, and now the book of Tobit is written in a way where there may have been historical characters that were Tobias and Tobit and Sarah and and, and it was maybe part of the the memory. We don't know any of this for sure because there, there's no other documents other than what we have in the book of Tobit. But it does fit the cities and the cultures and the times uh, to a certain degree that's loose. But at the same time, since it was written uh, much earlier, then it also contains many of the themes that were more important for the contemporary times in which it was written. And so although it was talking about being written um, sometime like in the 600s or late 500s or something like that in that historical time frame, or in the 600s, it actually was written down in a period that would have been a few hundred years at least uh, earlier. I always get messed up when I'm saying like earlier and later when you're talking BC. Have you ever noticed that? Because the numbers go backwards, and so you have to kind of think differently sometimes. And you know what else messes me up, and it still does? When people say, like, in the 13th century, because I always think 1300s, yeah. and then 13th century is really the 1200s. But if you go into the BCs, and they say the 12th century BC, no, well, now you're talking the 1100s BC. And so anyway, that's why I always, if you notice, I always say, in the 1300s. I do that because it's just easier. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad you asked. The relevance of the book of Tobit is basically some theological themes that were a part of that. So God's providence is with us daily. Because if you notice, um, in the entire book, as you're reading through the book of Tobit, God is continually present. And he's with Tobit and Tobias and Sarah. And he's guiding and leading and, and a part of that plan. And so there's this idea of the... Uh, the divine providence that is with them throughout the entire journey. And then also there's the idea that even if you're exiled and even if you're not living in the land, that you can still be a good practicing um, Israelite, practicing the good works of the law. And so you'll notice that, that both Tobias and Tobit were, were very careful to follow the Jewish ways, even though they were living in a foreign land. And so this was important because more and more Jews were part of what would be called the diaspora. Not only the ones that got exiled, like with the Syrian Babylon, but later on, uh, many of the Jews went down into Egypt and settled around the area of Alexandria. 
And Alexandria became a big area of uh, Jewish influence. That's where the Septuagint was written, remember? Or translated, I should say. And uh, in addition to that, eventually Jews would go out and they would be all over um, in southern Turkey. They would be even in Rome. And uh, they, they moved out into a lot of different areas. But they contained um, their culture and their traditions. And they would live together in small communities and so the book of Tobit encourages the Israelites and later the Jews to be faithful to their people, their culture, and their religion, regardless of where they live. And so it's a, it's a good moral lesson for that as well. It also shows family life at its best, a little bit at its worst too. But uh, there's one section actually where Tobias gets in a fight with his wife, and uh, there's a... Um, his wife goes and works and brings home, brings home a, a goat. And uh, Tobias, or Tobit, doesn't believe that, that she actually got paid with this goat. That he believes that she just kind of took the goat home without, you know, really being paid. And so, so after she goes, oh yeah, where's the holy man now? You know, and so you can kind of see a little bit of an argument around. And, and uh, But what's funny about, the reason why I remember this is we were to priest convocation and this was the reading at mass and uh so we had all the priests and bishop steiner and archbishop flasney was there and and uh, they had monsignor campbell who was uh, uh kind of an older priest back then he just died in the last year but he was he was the one who was sitting in the front row while while one of the young priests was reading this story about the goat and then the argument and, and then the, the wife saying, you know, where's the, where's the holy man now? You know, calling your wife a liar. What's wrong with you? You know, and basically, so then it, it goes down. And then at that point, Monsignor Campbell goes, damn goat. <laughs> and I don't think he thought he could be heard. <laughs> but so anyway, ever since then, so every time I hear that story, I, I think of that. Half the time I can't ever say what I'm thinking, but, but it does the, the rest of the book besides those little things shows a very real, I suppose, but it shows family life in, in amongst the Jews in a very good and positive light. And so it does show that the love and the concern and the care and the, uh, the providence they have for one another, as well as God's relationship with them. And it really does reflect a lot of that. It also shows a very good and profound theology of marriage. And when you read what, what Tobias and Sarah as, as a married couple are living, they're definitely, they're definitely living a covenant bond of marriage in a way that is relational. It's complementary, And there's a, a sense that it's much different than these stereotypes that we tend to pin on married couples in the ancient world. You know, like a lot of times, like I said, people think of marriage in the ancient world as, well, the man was the boss and the woman was no different than cattle, you know, and it's not the way it was, at least with good marriages. I'm sure there were tyrant husbands and everything else, maybe like there is today. But, but this book actually is a very good one. It shows that even um, predating Jesus by hundreds of years, that they were writing about marriage in a way that really did reflect the covenant bond of marriage in a very positive and powerful way. Another uh, theological aspect of Tobit is it shows God's goodness, where his goodness is there, uh, but it's sometimes hidden. Because we all have that question, and they had that question back then. With everything that's going on, 
Where is God in this? How is God leading us? Um, where is God's will? How do we know God's will? You know, how do we respond to what he calls us to? And, and so it demonstrates that in, in a way that's the type that you can look back and you can see where God was leading them all along, even though in the present, they may not have discerned it. And that's pretty much like the spiritual life. You, you, you go through life and, and you think, you know, where's God? How come I never see him? How come he, you know, and how come he doesn't just talk to me directly and make it easy? How come I have to kind of fight at this whole faith thing? But then if we look back, hopefully we can see where God has been all along guiding and leading and, you know, where he was, you know, forgiving and then he was restoring and then he was leading. And, you know, so this idea of seeing how God works in the past is sometimes easier than seeing how it is in the moment. And so you get a little bit of that. So God's goodness is there, even if sometimes it's hidden. So Tobit, the, the dad, I kind of wish they had different names, to be honest. Tobit and Tobias are so close. But Tobit's a model of faithful service, except when he accused his wife, Anna, of stealing the goat. She was sowing and she got paid the goat, you know. But anyway, she corrects him, which tells you something else, doesn't it? That a wife can correct her husband. You know, so again, it's not like this, you know, well, the wife's just cattle and the, the man. So she corrects him, basically puts him in his place pretty well. And then he laments. I kind of like it. He's feeling sorry for himself. So then he kind of goes like, woe is me, you know, but anyway. So Sarah is living in Ekbatana. That's a median stronghold and capital. And uh, he gains strength. Well, Anyway, when, well, I'll get to that. Okay, so there are, all, there are also some teachings on following God. He goes there to recover some silver with his traveling companion, and his traveling companion ends up being the archangel Raphael. And Raphael means um, God heals. I just had to think a little bit there. And so um, during the trip, there's a fish, and that's why, remember in the picture there, like the biting of the toe thing. Actually, there's this one section, it's, it's almost a little funny, and I, I have to think that the, the author was keeping that in there for a particular reason, but here he is sitting by the lake shore, and this big fish jumps out and grabs the guy's toe, and while he's, you know, grabbing the fish, then uh, the angel says, don't throw it back. There's some good healing remedies in that fish. And so anyway, he ends up taking, uh, I believe, the gallbladder, and he takes the, uh, makes an eye ointment out of that, and that's going to be what heals his dad, Tobit's eyesight. So, so it shows a bit of a healing process in there. So if you're ever fishing and you have a fish jump out of the water and get your toe, pull the fish off and get the gallbladder. Yeah, there was in... Uh, in the South, when they catch catfish, they call it noodling. Like when they put their arm out until a catfish comes and grabs them, and then they try to pull the fish out. So this is like holy noodling. Yeah. So, so Tobias heals Tobit's blindness. Tobit lives to 112 years old with his wife. And then Tobias moves to Media before the ruin of Nineveh. And then he lives for 117 years. Now... Those numbers are kind of what you call those like ideal numbers. It just shows that God was with them and blessed them and they had a big, long, happy life. And, 
it, it goes to show you that regardless of where you're at, you can still be a faithful Jew, follow the law, and have God's providence with you. You can have good marriages, and you can have every blessing that the Lord gives you, and you can look back and, and see how he was working throughout that. So, so the book is written in a style that reaffirms the practice of the faith and the holy life and shows how God is with you through it all. So anyway, it's a very, it's a very uh, encouraging book. The book of Tobit is considered deuterocanonical, and one of the reasons was is because they didn't have the Aramaic original or the Hebrew, and they, they don't know if it was ever written in Hebrew, but um, regardless, since it was in the Septuagint, but it didn't later work its way into the, the Jewish canon, um, it became what they called deuterocanonical for Catholics, but it's still part of the canon. But you'll notice that the Protestant churches, as well as the Jews, don't accept it as, as the canon of Scripture. The uh, Orthodox churches do. All right, so the Catholics and the Orthodox do. I explained all how that works, right? So you're all pretty comfortable with the... Why do Catholic? If someone asked you, why did Catholics add seven books to the Bible, what would you say? Yeah, we, we didn't. We just didn't take out the, the books that the early church continued to use throughout their history. You know, so that's, that's the basic idea. Yeah, it all came actually... The Jews later on in their canon omitted the books that were in the Septuagint that weren't Hebrew, but that happened after the establishment of the church. And then later on, when Martin Luther came on the scene... Um, he omitted them uh, for for different reasons, but anyway, that was the beginning in the the Protestant world where they didn't actually. Martin Luther wanted to get rid of other books as well, but the combination of Melanchthon and uh, Calvin and there was another one that that they convinced him, mostly Melanchthon, convinced him to uh, to put them back. Some of the New Testament books like. Uh, the book of James, for example, and even Revelation at one point. So anyway, but that's a different topic. All right. Judith. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Judith, Judith, but this was one of those books that was written at about 150 B.C., and it was during the Maccabean Revolt. And the book of Maccabees, was written in the uh, the time when, after the the northern Seleucid Greeks came down and pushed the Ptolemies farther south, and then ruled over the area around Israel. Then, after the next emperor came in, Antiochus the fourth, he put into practice this Hellenization that happened, and then there was the revolt of the Jews against the Hellenization that they were trying to enforce on the Jews. Basically saying, you know what, Jews, you're going to be Greeks now. So you're not going to do the, you're not going to do the Jewish worship. You're not going to do the Jewish practices. You're going to do all the things that the Greeks did. You're going to worship the Greek gods. And then there was a revolt that happened after that. It was the Maccabean revolt. So Judith was written around this time. And it's put back into a historical framework. Okay, it's similar to Tobit in, in this way. It's put back into historical framework of Nebuchadnezzar and the Assyrian army besieging Israel. And then it's Jewish 
but it does include some elements from the North, and it talks about this future unification and inclusion of the North as well as the South. So remember when I talked about First and Second Chronicles, and I mentioned that in that book, there's this, this idea of the, of the history of the split of the North and the South, but all along there was this ideal that one day there'd be this reunification of the North and the South, and it'd be based in the South and the Davidic monarchy, but it would be the restoration um, could happen. Well, this is being written about also in the book of Judith. And so there are some elements of the North, so it's not just Jews, and it does include the idea of restoration, unification, and inclusion of the North and the South. All right, so this is the, uh, the backdrop. Holofernes wants to destroy all other religions except deified Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian emperor. He was the one that, that originally was um, emperor when Israel was destroyed in 587 B.C. Yeah, in the Matrix. Have you ever seen the Matrix? The, uh, the ship... You notice the name of the ship was Nebuchadnezzar? That was weird. I was watching the movie the first time, and, and uh, it, was kind of, it had all these weird biblical symbols, but they would put them in in weird ways. So that was one weird way that the, the ship that they were on was called the Nebuchadnezzar. I have no idea why, but anyway, it seems, seems odd, but he was an obscure person in history for most people, but you all know that there was a real Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so, so at the time... The Jews were being besieged in Samaria up north. They called it Bethulia. The water supply was almost out, and they were going to surrender. They were getting ready to surrender. So there's Judith. She's this beautiful young widow. She's intelligent, devout, resolute, charming, and witty. And she is the opposite of the coward, uh, the coward Jews and Israelites at the time. You know, so, so it's basically... Showing, remember that theme that I talked about where the, the weak and the innocent and, and oftentimes the women, are rep, they represent Israel. And how it's like the barren woman represents Israel. Or the firstborn son is supposed to be king, but it's like the, the youngest son. Well, that represents Israel. And um, just like King David, you know, kind of goes back to that as well. But in a similar way, Judith, she represents um, that innocent, weak yet courageous Israel that, that God works powerfully through. So she teaches. So she, she basically balls everyone else out because they're, not, they're being cowards and they're not, not being strong. They're not trusting in God. They're not being faithful. And then she prays. So she has this prayer that's included in that. And then afterwards, she conquers. So once alone, she cuts off his head. So anyway, some, well, you got to do something to, you know, she seduced him, got her, got him drunk, cut off the head, hauled it back. You got to have a trophy. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll see some art every once in a while, some Renaissance art, because they liked a lot of these old biblical stories. This is one. So. You know, here she's looking so pious as she's like slicing away, you know. It's almost like the old days when they would have a um, prime rib and there'd be the guy, you know. 
I'm sorry, that was bad. But, but here's, here's the point of this, though, that God uses the weak to show his power. And then she shames the Jewish leaders by her faith and determination. So she not only balls them out, but she shows, shows them what it is. And then at the end, the leader of the Ammonites, Etchior, um, has a speech which sums up the lesson. And that's the chapter 5, the, the last part of chapter 5. But again, the, the reason for the book is to show, hey, Jews, get some courage. Show some strength. Yes, you're weak. We know you're, we're not powerful, but if we pray, trust in God, and act with courage, that God will be with us, and anything's possible. Even our weak, little, insignificant country can overcome this big, huge, Seleucid Greek empire, you know, which is a remnant of Alexander the Great. So it, it does show that in the present, um, that that's what happens, even though it is set back with a historical timeline that goes back hundreds of years. So... This is something that you'll notice happens is there's this layering kind of thing that happens. It happens again in Daniel and it happens with Esther and it happens with Judith. And what it does is it takes the modern situation and it describes what they need to do and how they need to be faithful based in a historical setting that predates it. And it's all, I don't know what historical fiction that applies to the present, even even though it may or may not be historical fiction, it's in that style. You see what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, that's part of that. So we'll go to uh, Esther, uh, Esther. By the way, there's that, that movie, One Night with a King. Has anyone seen that? Yeah, it's a good one. Actually, they did a good job with it. It was, uh, the, the movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, and then after that, Hollywood had a brief moment where they thought, hey, we should have more biblical movies. So they, uh, they brought out this one, the, the story of Esther. And it's actually was done fairly well. So Esther is set in a time of 485 to 465 BCs, BC. Ahasuerus, under the reign of Xerxes, Persian, this is Persian. This is the timeline for Persian. And uh, the book was written, though. There's some Hebrew parts, and then there's Greek parts to it. So um, the Hebrew parts and the Greek parts, about 160 B.C. or something like that. They're not exactly sure, by the way. Some of these, some of these things are guesses, based, trying to base it on the theology that underlies the text. So it could be much earlier. It could be, could be later. But anyway, it is... More importantly, what the story represents and what the story tells. It's the theological nature of the story that is the most important. And so you've got the story of deliverance. The Jews are in Persia. All right. So this is when the um, just right after the Babylonian exile that the Persians come to power with Cyrus. And then afterwards, you've got Xerxes and Darius and all these other ones. But. So the Jews are in Persia, and they're threatened with extermination by Haman. And then Haman is the, uh, in the court of the king, and he's got influence over the king. But the, Cur- the Persian king also has the um, many wives, and then there's the courts of some of the wives. And in that time, Esther, who was beautiful, pious, and faithful, 
um, she becomes part of the court and then later gets selected to be the queen as well. Because she was beautiful, pious, and faithful. So, in the end, what ends up happening is that um, Haman wants to exterminate the Jews. And because of that, he sets up this pattern for this to happen. But behind the scenes, the king's, the king's uh, wife, he wants her to come and show herself it is a big banquet, and she refuses. And then later on, because he's angry about that, he ends up getting a new queen to come in. And the new queen is Esther. And Esther gets the king's attention and describes the situation and changes his mind. And then at the same time condemns Haman because uh, the king sees Haman with Esther and thinks that he's trying to rape her. So you're trying to take my wife as well. And so then he hangs um, hangs Hammond. And then also the, the very end of the story is kind of the brutal part, but almost in retaliation, then the King allows the Jews to go through and kill all their enemies. So that of course is just kind of part of that idea of, you know, not only did they become restored and were they saved, but they were placed back on top, you know? So it's, it's that idea of, uh, uh deliverance and restoration. So what it basically teaches is God will not abandon his people. God will use the weak to show his power in action. And there's in verse chapter four, verse 14, it shows that even if Esther fails in what she's trying to do, because she, before she went to go and convince the the king, she, she prays and she purifies herself and then she goes. And so the idea that even if she fails, she says, God will find a way. And in the end, it was part of God's plan and his destiny that he would save his people. And so this is a, a book to encourage the people to remain faithful and to trust in God's providence and his deliverance. Okay, so it's about 10 o'clock now. So we'll have a little break. And then afterwards, I forgot to see if we had any questions about anything. So at the beginning of the next session, we'll kind of have some questions too. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.